The material shared within this podcast is based on the personal experiences and learnings of the presenter. Coloplast has paid the presenter for sharing this information. Nothing within this podcast is intended to be used as medical advice and or used to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the Coloplast Professional Bowel and Bladder Matters Podcast, where we explore various important topics related to ostomies and continence. I am your host, Amy Daniels McClure. I'm a registered nurse with a doctorate in nursing focused on rehabilitation and a clinical consultant with Coloplast. Today we welcome Dr. Anita Socolo, Assistant Professor of Clinical Pediatrics at the Keck School of Medicine, University of California. Clinically, Dr. Socolo currently serves as a medical director of the Motility Disorders Program and Program Director of Neurogastroenterology and Motility Fellowship Training Program at the Children's Hospital of Los Angeles. As a leader and mentor in the GI motility clinical space, Dr. Socolo teaches with a passion not only for kids that she treats, but a deep passion to educate and support clinicians around the country to help all kids with neurogenic bowel dysfunction reach better clinical outcomes and achieve better quality of life. It's an honor to get to talk with Dr. Anita Socolo today. Hi, Amy. Thank you for having me back. You're welcome. Thank you so much for joining us again. We learned uh, so much from you on that first bowel podcast. We're going to actually start kind of with a review from the last podcast where you talked about the basics of dysfunction. So we've spent a lot of time looking at neurogenic and non-neurogenic causes of bowel dysfunction, but can you just kind of start the today off with a review of the basics of bowel dysfunction despite the etiology? Yes, absolutely. So um, as we know, bowel dysfunction in children and adolescents uh, can be related to functional disorders or congenital uh, anatomic malformations or even neurologic causes. For those who have neurologic causes, typically we categorize them as neurogenic bowel. And neurogenic bowel simply means that there's a loss of normal bowel function due to a nerve problem. It can present as constipation or fecal incontinence or even both. And as we mentioned previously that in pediatrics, these two, uh, constipation and fecal incontinence, often coexist with each other. Um, Kids can have trouble passing a bowel movement or expelling their stools, and they have some loss of feeling or function in their lower portion of their bowel, so they don't know when their colon is full or when they have to stool. Typically, these kids uh, experience unintentional leakage of stool, and it's interesting that they can present as simply as with abdominal pain, nausea, uh, vomiting, and some of these children even have feeding intolerances. So neurogenic bowel, historically in pediatrics, was synonymous with spina bifida, right? Um, But there's a wide range of causes of neurogenic bowel, as we know. So it can be um, related to CP or cerebral palsy. It can be acquired from brain or spinal cord injury. Even transverse myelitis or anal rectal malformations can cause neurogenic bowel as well. Well, thank you for adding those on at the end there, Dr. Socolo. I think it's important to realize that those kids with those other diagnoses also have um, neurogenic bowel dysfunction. So I know that you, um, I've personally seen you in the clinic and you are phenomenal with getting these kiddos continent. Um, What is your personal goal when you start with these kids on treating their bowel management program and developing their program from the time when they're younger all the way through when they um, transition out of your care? Well, I always take into account what the needs of the patient and their caretakers or their family are first and foremost. 
And of course, ultimately, my goal is always to for patients to reach full bowel continence. So that is ultimately my goal. But I really have and that's to meet possible. parents. And, I have to chime absolutely. in right now, Dr. Sokolo. Absolutely. I'm, I'm sure there's people yeah. listening that would, would say, wow, really? Okay, that's good. It is. It really should be all of our goals. And I think um, we really have to meet families where they are and be able to offer them what they're ready for at that time. And really with the ultimate goal of reaching continence for their, for their family members or their children. Um, so sometimes, as I mentioned, um, families are like, you know, uh, engines roaring and ready to go with everything. And they're ready for me to offer them everything that I have in my arsenal. And I'm happy to do that. And sometimes my approach needs to be scaled or um, staggered in a way to make sure that I achieve the goals that the family is ready for at that time. Really, initially, we discuss um, adherence to the regimens being so important and compliance. And I really want the family and the patient, if they're old enough, to have full um, buy-in to the program. So if we don't have that buy-in initially, then usually we are struggling every visit to get compliance um, met. And that's really something that needs to be addressed first and foremost at the first visit and make sure that our families have buy-in. And again, ultimately my goal is for all my patients to have full bowel continence. So really I'm striving every visit to try to get them there if that's really what they're they're striving for as well. Well, that's great to hear that you have um, a lot of success, Dr. Socolo. I know that you teach that the bowel pyramid is there as a guidance. Um, I know it's not something that you want clinicians to necessarily focus on. But I do want to spend a little bit of time on the different aspects of managing bowels. So when you look at maybe the diet and fluid, kind of those really first line treatments, how do you start with those in your patients? Yeah, absolutely. So the pyramid is there, as you mentioned, it's really a guideline uh, for us. There's some tried and true methods in there that we should pay attention to, obviously. But clinically, depending on our patients, we need to be able to to, uh, modify it as needed. So As you mentioned, initially, there's diet and fluid recommendations, and those are important basics that we need to make sure are established with our families before um, we move on to other uh, types of therapy. So we work closely with our dietitians to optimize like fluid intakes, for example. We counsel them on uh, stool softening foods. And also one part of this that we might overlook is malnutrition can impact the motility as well. So we want to make sure that nutrition is optimized before we move on to other portions of the pyramid. And then from there, we move on to medication. So next on the pyramid, sometimes we need laxatives. For many of our neurogenic valves, we do need laxatives. And some of our patients actually need bulking type agents. So those patients that have anorectal malformations or other causes of neurogenic valve other than um, spina bifida, for example, might need bulking agents to help them slow down their valves a little bit because they don't have a sphincter that's uh, competent or a sphincter complex that's um, uh, working appropriately. Well, and I know we joke, Dr. Socolo, that you have a magic wand because sometimes it seems like you do, but mag- <laughs> you know, managing those medications and needing both at the same time, I know can be very, very hard for clinicians when they're first learning. So um, do you have a way that you use those laxatives and bulking agents in a specific way, or do you have specific medicines that you use? Yeah, absolutely. Really an important part of our practice is following pediatric gastrointestinal guidelines from our published uh, papers that we use. So the primary laxative I use um, is polyethylene glycol. Of course, there's lots on the market and it really, there is no magic wand. And my teaching for treating uh, chronic constipation or fecal impaction in these patients is that, you know, we should use the guidelines and really the important part of this and what changes my I guess, approach versus other people's approach is my persistence. 
So I use high enough doses to treat, and then I continue to treat until the problem is solved. So I don't just use it for one day and say, oh, it failed. I use it till the problem is taken care of. So we typically use doses similar to what we need for a colonoscopy cleanup, and we continue it until the stool is clear. Um, if yeah. the stool is not clear, sometimes we need to repeat the dose, and we do that. And then um, it's sometimes hard in these patients to distinguish if you're having diarrhea because the cleanup is done or if it's because of fecal incontinence right. and their exams might be limited based on their anatomy. So it's really important for us to get some imaging, right? Like even I need imaging. So I'm, I'm really good at palpating abdomens. I always joke that, you know, I could feel uh, poop on anybody's <laughs> tummy. <laughs> I have heard but your fellow still, say that, yes. <laughs> yes, yes. But I still get x-rays and you should. You should get a KUB and make sure that the cleanup is done because if you don't accomplish that first step, you're kind of stuck and you're in this bad cycle of leakage and impaction. So you really want to make sure that first step is taken care of very well, especially in patients with neurogenic valves. Um, when they don't have sensation, they can't really tell you uh, what's going on. So we can't always depend on them um, being, uh, you know, the self-reporters and telling us how they feel. Well, and I've just seen from the little bit I've worked with your patient population, the parent reports aren't necessarily accurate either. Yeah, absolutely. So the parents, you know, sometimes they've had bad experiences with a lot of mm -hmm. laxatives, right? Like they'll say, oh my gosh, I can't use this medication at all. I give them half a capsule, I give them a teaspoon and they're leaking all over the place. It's a disaster. And yes, absolutely. Those, those uh, recollections are a hundred percent correct, mm -hmm. but it takes time to educate them and tell them why they experienced that, that actually the dose might not have been sufficient. And I draw pictures and I have them watch videos and I really have them understand the anatomy and the pathophysiology of what's happening. And once they do, then you get the buy-in. Then they're like, okay. okay, now I can do the cleanup. Mm -hmm. But before that, of course, I mean, many of them have had terrible experiences and they're not going to be compliant with your regimen. And it's scary. I know I've heard you talk before about how um, constipation can can show, or they can be having liquid stool and they can have a boulder or a really hard ball of stool in their colon. And so it's hard for them to trust, right? That what you're saying is yes, really going to... Absolutely. I always joke with my patients too that, you know, kids with neurogenic valves love to be a little bit constipated, right? Because mm -hmm. it works like as a dam and it keeps yep. everything kind of at bay. So they can go to school, they pass a hard little ball of stool, nobody really notices, it's not that messy, they can change themselves, it doesn't smell too horrible, it doesn't make a big mess in their wheelchairs if they have to use a wheelchair and they can go visit and all this stuff and, and not worry about it. And then once we get into a bowel regimen, I always tell them, like, this is the expectation. We might unveil things that you're not seeing now. So we might unveil the fact that actually um, your sphincter is incompetent and you might have some fecal incontinence if you didn't have this impaction. So I make sure that the families know about that before they start. And I tell them, we're not going to leave you high and dry. So there's lots of options for us to be able to manage that. So sometimes it is with medications after we do it, but sometimes it's with things like transanal irrigation that we can offer them to help keep their bowels empty and them continent during the day and, and be able to be um, socially you know, um, normal without people knowing that they have this issue. And that is a great term, Dr. Zakola, that some people on listening to this podcast may not be familiar with. Um, but I do want to just point out that you, I appreciate that even though you are taking that quote unquote dam away, um, that you do promise them that you're going to keep trying until you get them control. Um, and I think that's really great. Um, and then you mentioned transanal irrigation. So what is transanal irrigation? 
So transanal irrigation is really um, becoming a cornerstone of our therapies in pediatrics. So obviously in peds, uh, we're always looking for a more conservative approach before we send kids off to surgery. And we want to make sure that our patients, obviously, like we spoke about previously about the pyramid, we want to make sure they've already trialed the, you know, diet, the meds, the toileting, all of that. And once Mm -hmm. that's failing, we start looking at things like transanal irrigation um, prior to committing them to surgery. And uh, it involves really just pretty simply the insertion of a catheter into the rectum, and then you do retrograde installations of water into the colon to irrigate the colon. And this is done on a daily basis. And from our studies, we know that transanal irrigation, if done correctly with the right volumes and the right positioning, can clean out the descending colon and maybe even the transverse colon. So these children can be free of soiling accidents for 24 hours at a time. There's newer versions on the market for children to perform transanal irrigation on their own now and be independent of their caregivers. And these are mostly pump-based systems where you don't have to balance, you know, holding the bag up or having more equipment with you in the bathroom or somebody to help you in the bathroom, which is nice because it improves these kids' quality of life to be able to perform these things independently and really anywhere. It's very portable. They can take it anywhere with them. Oh, that's good. So it, it, independence and quality of life. So yeah, are you talking absolutely. about independence with the actual clean out then? So it's independence with being able to perform the system on their own. So they can do their irrigations completely on their own. I have as young as eight-year-olds doing their irrigations um, in the bathroom on their own, having no daytime fecal incontinence and being able to manage their bowels. Um, So, of course, it takes some training and some time and some parent help initially. But, yes, absolutely. And, again, you have to gauge where your families and your patients are. Some patients are not ready for that. Either, you know, developmentally they're not um, mature enough to be able to do it. But some patients are, and we should be able to understand that and offer those mm-hmm. things to them. That's a big game changer for you, I'm sure. When it comes to transanal irrigation, have you seen a difference in clinical outcomes as well as quality of life and independence? And if so, what have you seen? Yeah, so we know both from publications, so there's literature published on this as well as our own experience, that pump-based transanal irrigation systems tend to clean the colon much better, so the irrigation is more effective when it's done. And we've even had in our own practice success in transitioning patients that have been on traditional cone enemas to pump-based systems to allow for ease of use. As I said, uh, it's portability, it's independence. And this type of system obviously improves their quality of life, right? Like it improves Mm -hmm. their social confidence, their independence, as I mentioned. And secondary gains for us medically, we also see an improvement in their constipation and fecal incontinence. And then they even have a decrease in UTIs and a decrease in the time they spend doing their bowel regimens or on the toilet. Wow, it impacts their bladder too, huh? Yeah, absolutely. So in prior podcasts, I mentioned this as well. It's actually a screening question for me to make sure that they don't have bladder involvement with their bowel involvement. It is a part of neurogenic bowel. That's good to know then. So now we've talked a lot about those conservative methods, but sometimes we know bowels just don't respond to those, right? So what surgical options do you use in your practice? And you know, everybody's going to want to know if you prefer one or the other. When a patient fails, we must be able to look at the reason and offer other solutions to that family. So we look at why they uh, failed. So was it because of noncompliance? Was it because of some anatomic reason that they weren't able to perform um, the irrigations well? Or was it something else that needed to be fine-tuned? Or maybe sometimes the families are like, this is not for us. We can't continue with this. And that's okay as well. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so for us to uh, differentiate between these things, sometimes we use imaging. So like barium enemas to give us some anatomical information. Um, because it's accessible to me and I'm a motilist, I use motility testing to understand uh, the function of the anal rectum. So the sphincter, its function, the sensation, all of those things, or even to look at colonic manometry to see if that colon even moves stool from the right side to the left side. And then we have to reevaluate our goals and our commitment with the family, right? Like we have to see what they want now. So this has happened, we have failed, and now where are we? What do you want and what are your goals? So we need to eat at each step be able to reevaluate and ensure that they're still committed to the next step. So if all these have been done, and if it's appropriate, we should refer them to surgery. And we use many options in partnership with our colorectal teams and base it on patient compliance, obviously, their anatomy and their motility. And these factors help us decide what type of surgery we offer. So there's various types. There's a sacostomy um, with or without a device. So you can catheterize directly into the skin or in through a device, depending on the patient and their needs. Um, including a mace, or you can offer an ostomy depending on the motility Mm -hmm. pattern. So maybe a sacostomy isn't the option. Maybe we need to to move on to an ostomy. All of these things are really done in partnership um, as a um, team-based effort. It's not just us deciding. It's really a a team effort trying to decide what's best for the patient, the family, and their needs. I loved hearing you say that, Dr. Sokol. I mean, every, every answer that you provide us, you talk about how important it is to include the family and the patient as a team. And then in this case, you would add the colorectal team. I think that's very important for any physician out there, especially if it's a PCP or somebody that's learning um, how to do this bowel management, that they, it is a team approach, right? And you have the, the bowel part figured out, but everybody else needs um, to kind of chime in and help. So that's great to hear that you are partnering with not only other clinicians, but the patients and the families as well. I think that's really important. So in summary, what are the key components to basic bowel management programs for any pediatric clinicians, not only the specialists, but we know a lot of the primary care clinicians are being asked to take on more um, of these kiddos care. And what, what would you suggest to them for maximizing the effectiveness and outcomes of bowel programs? So we talked about a stepwise approach for these patients um, initially, right? Diet, hydration, Mm -hmm. um, making sure medications are optimized and appropriate for the patients. You know, behavior and toileting, if it's appropriate, and then offering them the newest things that are available on the market. Sometimes the things that were tried and true 10, 15 years ago, um, although they might be effective, we need to be able to know better ways new and upcoming ways to irrigate the bowels and be able to offer these to our families. And finally, finally, there's surgical options. But again, all of these in a bowel program is really centered around the patient, the caretaker, and a team approach. It needs to be a multidisciplinary team. So it's just not the GI doctor there. Obviously, Mm -hmm. the pediatrician needs to be involved. We have social workers, dietitians, nurses are an integral part of our team. And obviously, when needed, our surgical partners as well. Yeah, bowels are complex, huh? Absolutely. Not just the tube with a hole. <laughs> yes, there is a lot more to it. Um, so yeah. thank you for joining us again today, Dr. Socolo. We look thank forward you, to having you. It was a pleasure. Again. You're welcome. Thank Bye-bye. You. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Bowel and Bladder Matters podcast, part of Coloplast Professional, where we believe clinician education related to ostomies and continence matters. For more educational resources from Coloplast, visit us at coloplast.us slash professional.